Howdy, everybody, and welcome to uh, what I believe we are going to be calling a Dialogue on Dialogue, uh, as we walk through cool questions about conversations and adventure gaming and how dialogue shapes narrative and all kinds of fun, heady questions. Uh, joining me is Paul Ritchie, who is the designer of games that you might heard of and enjoyed, like uh, Murder on the Zindernuff and Archon <laughs> and... Also, probably this whole Star Control Urquan Masters thing, which is likely what you're here for. So as we dive into the design of Urquan Masters 2, which is in work right now, uh, Paul had a lot of thoughts about the way that dialogue affects gaming, which sounds like an obvious thing to talk about, but uh, it's actually an incredibly nuanced topic, and Paul's been around designing games for a long time and has a lot of experience in thinking about these questions. So hello, Paul, and how are you doing? Hey, Lee. Oh, I'm totally nuanced. Ready to go. <laughs> Um, I haven't. I, that would be my middle name if I have middle name. Maybe I should adopt. Nuanced it. Paul, nuanced Richie. Yeah, that's right. It was actually my name was supposed to be Choya because my parents were hippies, and I am so glad that didn't work out. I don't know why. I don't know. Maybe the drugs were off or something. In any event, I am so glad to be here and talking about talking, talking about Excellent. writing about talking. So. Um... We've come up, by we, I mean some of the Pistol Shrimp team and me have come up with a few, uh, a few sort of guiding questions for this discussion here. Um, and really what we want to do is allow you folks uh, who have contributed so much to the game's design uh, in terms of uh, money and enthusiasm, both of which, both of which we, we greatly appreciate, um, we want to let you guys sort of peek behind the curtain a little bit into how this process works and... Uh, and give you sort of an x-ray of what's going on in Paul's head, at least the, the safer work parts of it, about how dialogue uh, informs game design choices. So let me see here. We have a big list. Uh, we have a big list of questions. So I'll pick one of Paul's questions that he wrote down for him to answer himself, because those are going to have the best answers. Um, because that's how interviewing works. This, this one's broad. Um, so we want to try to keep this, once, once this is all edited down, we want to keep this to a reasonable length. So... And I recognize that starting this with a huge open-ended question is not a way to keep this in a reasonable length, but I'm going to do it anyway. Who and what inspired and motivated your interest in interactive conversations in fiction? Well, there you go. Um, that is one of the biggest questions. I think the most obvious thing is reading science fiction and fantasy my whole life. I wish I could say that I was a consumer of the really serious adult fiction that supposedly makes you a better person. But what I am as a consumer of fiction and history and science that makes me happy. And this will be a recurrent theme. I do what makes me happy and hopefully other people as well. And uh, the first books that I had read to me were Norwegian folktales and science fiction, specifically uh, The Zero Stone and uh, some Robert Heinlein, like The Star Beast. And those two books, one by Andrea Norton and one by Robert Heinlein, are the first books I actually remember reading besides maybe The Adventures of Nels about a boy who turns into a goose, which I think had less influence on me. But the idea of traveling out into space, um, confronting mysterious and uh, dangerous people and aliens and things, and then getting big treasure as a reward has just, it's just baked into me at this point. And I was so fortunate to be part of the um, you know, the, the boom in funding for public schools that happened when the Russians got uh, a satellite into orbit before us, uh, they pumped money into the system. And so we had all kinds of material and literature and workbooks and stamp books and you name it, all about hopefully making us better at making presumably spaceships and nuclear weapons. Um, and that actually was my first career choice. Um, I was uh, looking at joining um, 
Lawrence Livermore Labs coming out of high school. And then it turned out you needed a degree or two to do that because I wanted to work on fusion power systems and fusion starship I hear that engines. involves a lot of math, actually. Yeah. That actually, that was the failing. Um, yeah. Just a couple of classes above calculus, I hit my ceiling and realized I needed a plan B, um, which actually wasn't going into gaming full-time. It was field geology, and I got a horrible case of poison oak. So plan C, or plan B slash two, was continuing to make games uh, by just doing it professionally, which thank God I did that because one, I really did have a horrible poison oak allergy, and two, my math ability, after running into people like Fred Ford and Ken Ford and other people who actually understand real math, boy, I was a long way from doing anything except probably making pretty spectacular explosions. Yeah, I think Fred was talking about quaternions the other day, which, as far as I know, was like an alien, a potential alien race in Star Control. And it turns out, no, it's just some more maps. I always thought it was an evil Victorian, you know, Dr. Quaternion. It just sounds like someone, <laughs> you know, who would Sherlock Holmes would have taken down. But to go back to the question, um, uh, science fiction, fantasy, and um, fantasy role-playing. So those are the, the cores of where I got interested in talking with weird beings. Um, you know, whether it's sort of the dialogue in my head with characters in books. So, you know, they're oftentimes in a book, you get this like little taste of a character. And then if you're like me, you make a little copy of that character in your head and it just starts running and you can have little conversations with it. And this does sound kind of crazy, which may explain why I'm answering a question asked by myself. But having conversations with these character emulations that are running in your head is a big way that I work. Um, and I think that it was natural for me to take some of those conversations and transcribe them into game form. And also playing Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games and then working on them uh, when I was young, that naturally led to setting up the dungeon master or the games master for conversations with players where it was more than just this is exactly what you say to them, but rather it was here's the information that you give immediately. Here's the stuff that you can give if they just dig a little bit. And then here's the stuff that you give only when they trigger it with these certain kinds of questions or phrases. And that led uh, obviously to text adventures and um, other early interactive fiction products and, and kind of experiments that I was running into on, you know, well, even before uh, personal computers on um, teletype based software, because uh, I started I started with that really young. You you actually brought up something that I wanted to touch on uh, that isn't written down when you mentioned the when you mentioned the way that conversations in a tabletop role playing game work with, especially if you've got a good group with the dungeon master sort of taking on the role of the of the NPC and uh, and and the player doing the player thing. Is that ultimately you think sort of the the paradigm that you come back to no matter what game you're in with the way that conversations are designed to work? Is it ultimately aping the the D and D experience? Uh, I think that's part of it, and, and maybe just that sort of um, extemporaneous conversation just uh, trained me a little bit in how to just pick up and ramble nonsense and, and hopefully make jokes and tell important secrets. But I think actually, in terms of how you go about creating the kind of interactive fiction that we made in the Erquan Masters, which is just a particular version, it came out of a short experience I had working with a company called Synapse Software in the early 80s, early mid 80s. And they had created a, um, a language called BTZ, better than Zork, uh, by um, who Catherine Mataga was the main implementer of that. 
And it was intended to be a parsing system and kind of game definition language for making uh, the next generation of text adventures, which is why they called it Better Than Zork. And we, uh, that there was a team of, I don't know, maybe eight or nine authors who were just starting out. We, we all sort of didn't have a, a real clue on how to do it. So we were taking apart what other people were doing in interactive fiction at the time, which was almost all Infocom and Adventure International's text adventure games by Scott Adams, like Pirate's Adventure. And we would sit around this table and talk about the experience, both technically of working in the BTZ language, but then also just things that we had been thinking about. You know, how, how is it that you write interactive fiction? And there was a conversation uh, that just completely changed the way I thought about conversation and about interactive fiction. And it was, I can't remember exactly which of the writers it was. It wasn't Pinsky, because believe it or not, we had a, a later uh, <laughs> poet laureate of the United States sitting at the table because it was in Berkeley and he was around. Uh, but someone said, hey, I figured something out. Conversation can be thought of as a maze. And he said, so, so if you think about when you're talking with someone and you actually want to make a game mechanic out of it. What you need to do is think of conversation as having subjects, which are rooms. And you go into a room and you talk with them about the subject. And then you say something which takes you to the next room, which is a different topic of conversation. And ultimately, what you're trying to do is move yourself through this maze to get to your desired destination. And the manner in which you traverse rooms in this conversation maze is are the individual game mechanics and you know honestly i don't know what came out of that because i got into a big argument with um, this guy named ehor about the contract and subsequently errol otis and i who were working on a horror story never finished that for them but that just idea that conversation could be thought of as a maze when it comes to gamifying it just absolutely structured how i saw things going forward into the future and in particular, how we tackled the Urquan Masters. Did you do any uh, any work in interactive fiction before Urquan Masters? And obviously, I know the answer to this question. You know, I mentioned jokingly Murder on the Zindernuf and and several other games. Archon doesn't, I think, have a lot of conversation in it. But you know, your your game design credits extend far and wide in lots of directions in both ways before and after Urquan Masters. So tell me about your interactive fiction work before <laughs> Urquan Masters. Well, uh, I mean, obviously there was some in paper games and in role-playing games, but um, the first computer game I worked on was called The Keys of Acheron, and it was for a company which was called Automated Simulations, which would later become Epix Games. And they had a, a fantasy role-playing system, and in it, you there wasn't enough memory to actually store text. We could only store references to, to paragraphs. So you would write paragraphs in a book and then reference those within the game. So you'd walk into a Oh my a room. gosh, and I have to interrupt you just very briefly because I, there is a generation of PC gamer even that I don't think knows what the hell you're talking about with <laughs> paragraph books. Um, remind us just for a moment what things were like back in those days. Okay, so say you had 16 kilobytes to work with in your game and you needed to draw dungeons and maybe have a couple of graphics for your monsters and your protagonist character text, you know, hey, that chews up a lot of memory. That's maybe a byte per character. And um, so what we would do uh, back in those days, and this is 1982, 1983, 
is you would take all of the text and you would move it into a physical book, into a, a manual, and then you would code uh, each of the paragraphs or statements with an index number, and that's all that you could afford to represent in the game itself. So you would move your little blocky dude into a little blocky room, and it would say, you know, paragraph 87, and you would go there, and then there would be my flowery statement about, you know, you meet this guy, and he says this thing to you, and uh, is that interactive? Kind of, because, you know, you got to control how you moved through the world. But um, the, the genuine, the first interactive fiction I, I worked on in games was in, it's called Murder on the Zendernif with um, another designer, John Freeman, and a programmer, Robert Leyland, who, who shows up repeatedly as a partner of mine. He's the guy who invented the uh, Skylanders hardware. And um, so in that game, uh, you were uh, trying to solve a mystery in a zeppelin, because of course that's where mysteries occur. So you're in a zeppelin, you're wandering around, and when you meet people, you could talk with them. But instead of having those expensive statements you could make, you assumed a posture. So it could be hostile, it could be seductive, it could be friendly, it could be whimsical. And then we built these sort of templates for possible investigators. So you could be like Clouseau, um, in which case you're sort of making random goofy statements and confusing people. Or you could be, you know, like Dirty Harry wandering around or, you know, Sherlock Holmes. Um, and so you, you would choose a posture, which is like, I'm going to be crazy and I'm going to ask a question. And then there were different characters that you would meet. And there was a cast of, I think, 16 characters. And each of them had a personality. And then we had a table for this particular character with this particular posture, how successful is it with this particular person? So if you're Clouseau and you're trying to be seductive towards a dowager, you have a much better chance than if you're trying to be seductive against kind of, we had essentially Dracula wandering around there. And so we synthesized, uh, we had a plot template about, you know, this is a murder triangle involving two people who are in love and they murder the, the you know spouse of the other person. And then we would fit characters into the templated positions you know there's you know lover one lover two and murdered person and then you would walk around asking questions and if you picked the right posture with the right character and talked to the right person they would give you a piece of information that let you sort of narrow down who was the culprit and then you got one chance to like run that person down and accuse them and now, when so, you say ask questions and stuff the actual dialogue that's presented on screen in the game you get the option of a posture that you're going to do. So you can be obsequious or friendly or hostile or whatever, but you <laughs> exactly. don't actually see like the, the subsequent, like, well, you, you know, actually mustache did. twisting dialogue or do you, you, you actually did. Um, I believe I, I, I think, I think one of the keys was we wanted you to be surprised and delighted by what your character said. Um, hmm. Now I could be mistaking this for what then happened in Starflight because I spent some time with Greg Johnson uh, talking about this kind of conversation system. And uh, I think that's, this is more or less kind of the direction they took in that, although they obviously took it much further. And the idea was, you know, you want to, to be delighted by what you say and surprised. And of course, in Star Control, or in um, the Iroquois Masters, uh, we went a different route. We offered specific fixed statements that are contrasted against one another and you get to pick one. And the reason we did that was it was so funny to see the contrasting options. I mean, I think one of the keys about protagonists for me 
and uh, characters that you meet in fiction is I love it when they all take themselves seriously and they're all ridiculous. And when you can contrast this very serious thing you're saying with this very blustery thing, ridiculous over the top, sort of trying to bully someone with just some sort of obviously crazy lie, that absurd contrast is really appealing to me because I think in my head, I'm doing all those things all the time. <laughs> you approach someone at the grocery store and you want to complain about a peach. Like I could be obsequious. I could be, you know, rah! and then, you know, then we're back to murder on this internet, you know, which will be more successful. But, uh, and I, influencing this was my playing of Monkey Island, uh, you know, um, Gilbert and the crew at LucasArts at that time made what I thought at the time was one of the best games of all time. And the manner in which you could see the contrasting phrases you could make was super entertaining. So we just ran with that in the Urquan Masters. And I think that's a big part of its charm is you can go down the straight path and sort of, you know, it's, it's pretty clear which route is going to take you to the end quickly in a straightforward way. But you can kind of wend your way through different different kind of attitudes and subjects and goofy things. And you get, you know, alien responses to them, which is always nice to see. And it allows those responses to unexpected statements is part of what helps you build up the alien's uh, character. So I want to switch to a question from Dan, Dan Gerstein, our, our lead designer and master of, honestly, I'm not sure what Dan does because he does so many things. <laughs> um, but he has a couple of great questions on this list that, that tie directly into Urquan Masters into a couple of other questions that I want to hit. So uh, I want to give his both of his back-to-back. -back. And the first one that he wrote here um, is how do conversations tie into other parts of the game? And I know that sounds like kind of an obvious question, but from a design perspective, like does a conversation influence ship design, for example? Well, what one half of that is on the creative side, which is how do you approach making characters and dialogue and the other is um how does the game itself respond to your conversation so i'm going to tackle the first one which is um when we were working on the Airquan masters we had the basis of what was star control one where we had very very thin descriptions of the alien races we would have sort of a postage stamp sized image of them and then a very short description of how they worked but a whole lot of their character existed again in those little captain's windows postage stamps that were animated and then in the behavior of their spaceship and then there was some additional dialogue some additional material that was put into the manual only some of which i wrote so when it came time to do the sequel and fred and i said hey let's do a let's do a, a quick sequel that's got a little light role-playing game mixed in and obviously that's not where we ended up um a big part of what we did was trying to rationalize kind of the off-the-cuff character definitions that we had. So in some cases, like with the with the Yehat, um, you know, I, there had been, I think, one little mention of clan structure. And so at this point, I had a couple of Scottish friends and an interest in some Scottish history, uh, which is mostly about massacres and cows. And, I mean, apologies to all Scottish people, including my son-in-law. But um, in any event, uh, so with that word clan, uh, I sort of ran with it and grafted on this whole quasi-Scottish um, structure to their behavior. And I was thinking about, you know, the competition between the Queens, uh, Mary and Elizabeth. And that led into this idea that there could be kind of a, a factional conflict built into the game. And so that factional conflict led me into, well, what would they be mad about? 
and uh, part of it came, you know, when I decided that the show Fixity had uh, blown themselves up to, to kind of really be great heroes and sort of change the course of the war uh, before the game begins, actually. Um, that seemed like the focal point and the, the kind of the part that would have really stuck in the emotional craw of the Yehat. So it was this one little word, clan, which I think came from the manual. It was the fact that they looked like pterodactyls. Uh, and then there was an illustration that Errol Otis drew of the Pekunk, which had kind of a, looked very much like the Yehat. And I had been trying to figure out how to connect the races. And you know, you're always trying to figure out, well, how do they relate to one another? Because that's what makes things interesting. You're not just dealing with each one independently. And, and thing you do over here can change the world on the other side of the, the space map. Uh, so that's when we said, oh, okay, well, maybe the Pekunk are actually related. Um, they're both kind of a birdie. And okay, so then perhaps they can figure into this civil war. So it was... In one sense, any of the assets that had been created that helped describe the characters, whether it was tiny little postage stamp images, whether it was the idea that there was a relationship between them and the show Fixity, which I think is set up in the first in the first game, um, all of those things come in to influence the sort of web of resolution, is, is how I think of it, where you know, I I we do plan out a lot about how the game flows, and particularly how the conversations flow. We can get to that in a minute. But um, as you're going, <laughs> you discover, or at least I discover so much about how the game's going to work just by virtue of working on it. So, you know, you're in the midst of writing something about the Pekunk and you hear something on the radio about a 900 number, which no one remembers anymore, probably. And so I throw that in there and I've been reading something about this um, kind of, I live in Marin County and there's a lot of quasi spiritual, supernatural stuff that goes on here. And there was something about an ancient warrior spirit who could enlighten you if you read a book or paid money. I can't remember what it was. And so I slipped that in and I mixed it with the 900 number because it was on the phone. And and I just sort of fell in love with the Pekunk because Greg Johnson had written a bunch of the meat of their dialogue. And I kind of wanted to play then with that character that Greg had had defined. So you know, I would take the work that I, I would I would hand out work that was structured, and again we can get to that. Get back the work from the writers who were helping me, like Greg Johnson, and then I would go back in and edit it. And then as the game went along and more stuff would come along, I would sort of speak with the voice that had been created by the author who worked on it. So, in some cases, though, Errol say would do a drawing of an alien kind of out of the blue, and I would be so inspired that that would define the character. You know, completely. So uh, the Ilraf, I think, were an example of um, early on, Errol had drawn a, a spider alien. And the original spiders, as drawn in Star Control 1, uh, were very literal and sort of top down. You saw all their whole abdomens. And, and But when Errol painted them again with those little like lava lamp backgrounds, it completely inspired me to make them so evil and so over-the-top crazy evil and and sort of bouncing between the absurd evil and the actual scary weird evil. And then Matt Genzer wrote uh, a lot of the meat of that dialogue, and he's loved being over-the-top, and the whole pop the crunchy noisemaker comes from him. So <laughs> I think it's it's hard to say. I think I I love 
finding things out as I go. There's people who that for that's they, they want to plan everything down to the last detail and then implement it. They, they may be called engineers and they definitely have <laughs> a role in our success. Uh, ask Fred. But um, I just love the idea that you're you're zipping along through writing and you know something just kind of pops into your head and you write it down and then you know that night you know you're you know watching TV and you're like oh my god that could connect with this other thing or someone draws a spaceship that looks like a crazy flowery butterfly and you're just like yep that is perfect for the Bekunk because they're a bunch of flowery butterfly people so I and I think Toys for Bob in a way that was the the studio that we built Fred and I. You know, we made the, uh, the Star Control and the Airquad Masters games there, and then a whole bunch of other games, and then ended up rolling it in and out of a couple of companies and eventually uh, building it up and selling it to Activision and then leading that studio for another decade or so. Uh, and to a certain extent, its culture was constructed to allow me to continue making games because I do tend to operate on the fly and not want to have everything locked down early on. And so that got kind of baked into the culture and so as we brought more and more people in, that remained the, the premise of Toys for Bob, which is that, um, you know, you, you, if you have a great idea and we can pull it off and it doesn't derail everything else, then let's do it. I don't care if it's in the design doc or not. And, you know, that showed up in solving some problems with um, Skylanders in which we actually had the audio department solve one of our major design problems. And we allowed that because... One, we had a programming language for designers, which which anyone could use. And then also everybody was kind of authorized to offer ideas. And um, so I think that's the evolution of how it is that I can make excuses for the way I design and turn it into a company philosophy. You've answered this already, but I want to hear it. I want to hear a focused answer here. So how how much do you know going into crafting a conversation when you're going to write dialogue for an alien? When you have a conversation you're going to sit down with, how much do you know going in? How much do you discover, uh, and I, this can be anything, how much do you discover about the alien or about the plot and the process? And then Dan has written also in here, how do you integrate your discoveries into reevaluating your starting point, which is very fancy designer language. I have no idea about that last part, but I'm going to start with how do, how do you do it? So, um, and I have thoughts here too. I want to, when you're done, I want to weigh in on this because this is my first major game project, but like. I'm <laughs> I'm learning so much by being thrown into this fire. Yeah, we like to throw people into the deep end. I think that's that's another choice for Bob uh, mechanism. Dan Gerstein, as a matter of fact, showed up one day. I think he had just gotten out of high school or maybe he was on his way out of high school. And at Toys for Bob, we had a computer that anyone could come use if they wanted. And they could, so we had, you know, gosh, we had, you know, newly divorced uh, single moms. We had lots of kids in their first years of college, some high school students. And the premise was they could work on the computers. And then if they wanted to do something for the game that was, you know, usually it was pretty um, uh, grunt work, uh, you know, placing coins or something like that, or, or <laughs> you know, putting text into the game or something like that, they could. And then eventually, if they did a good job, we'd start paying them. And then eventually, if they kept doing that, we would hire them. And so we got a number of our good employees, long-term employees that way. Um, but anyway, how do you make a conversation? Well, the first thing is you. Uh, what I do is I make a flowchart of the meat of it. And in the past, I actually did these by hand with pencil. And I think maybe we can provide with this podcast some samples of what I did in the past that include like coffee stains and burrito stains. Um, but so, and primarily this is organized in 
in the old days, uh, what I would call conversation stacks, which is there's a set of messages or a set of uh, statements that you can make. And let's call this, um, gosh, this is sort of a, a decision where you need to make a decision about what you're going to say next. And there are player statements. And there's an initial set of, say, four player statements, which is one is a threat, you know, surrender or die, alien scum. And another one is like a polite request, like, oh, if you happen to have any fuel, we could really use it. And it would foster, you know, human alien relationships. And another might just be a random joke. And if you make one of those statements, then there's a, an alien response, uh, what we call now an NPC response. And so it's then there's a choice, which is either that option goes away completely. And so now you have fewer options when you're done with that. You're, you make a statement and then make a response, or you can replace it. And when a stack is a series of these, so I say, you know, tell me about your history. And they say, well, we don't really like talking about our history. And then you could have, no, I'm really interested, please. And then, you know, they, they can respond to that. And eventually you exhaust that stack or that stack has a something that takes you to a different part of the conversation. It's a new room in the conversation maze. So if you look at the flowcharts that I did for the Urquan Masters 1, and I did all of those, um, they pretty much say things like ask about their history or ask about the Ultron. And in that case, it's something specific that I knew. Or it's threat number four or threat number one. And I, I even had this sort of template for a standard alien conversation should incorporate all of this. And it let you communicate to them about who you were. It let them communicate who they were. And then there were ways of exploring some basics. And so I would take that template uh, once I had actually figured it out. And then I would lay in what was unique about this alien race, like stuff about the Ultron or stuff about telling the Illrath about the Thridash. Or, um, and then I would write out little boxes for every player statement that needed to get made, which is a short, usually sentence or two. And then an alien response, which could be of any length. And I would hand it off. Uh, I did about half the writing. And then I had about about half of the Hearst drafts were done by other folks based upon me saying, okay, this is the Illrath. This is what they're like. And here's the layout of the phrases. And, you know, there's a title for each one. If it's important that it accomplishes a certain goal, the title will tell you what the goal is. Like, you know, tell them about Channel 44 or, you know, um, you know, explain that, oh gosh, uh, um, you know, explain that they're related to the Yehat or something like that. And then the writer, and these were Errol Otis and Matt Genzer and Robert Leyland and Ian McCaig and a few other folks who had sort of just, I knew were good writers and very motivated to participate and, you know, hadn't really had a chance to be professional writers yet, so this was this was a, a great option for all of us. And they would come back, and oftentimes, if I was lucky, it was typed in in a file. Oftentimes, it was handwritten, and they would just have the title of the statement, and then there would be you know the block of text for their response. And Errol, for example, started the oars, and the first thing he did was just write a page of sort of idioms or manners in which they behaved, or sort of trademark statements. And this is where the whole happy campers and dancing and use of the asterisks came in. And then Errol had to shift to something else. And so I gave that piece of paper to Greg Johnson and then Greg ran with that because he didn't know what Errol meant at all. So he was yeah, sort of when interpreting. It comes to folks who could just sit down and bang out alien dialogue, Greg Johnson's probably up near the top of the list. Yeah, Greg, Greg is, you know, 
uh, I did a tiny bit of work on Starflight and Greg did a ton of work on, on Urquan Masters. And <laughs> I was so fortunate to have the friends and, and the people who helped work on the game because obviously they were a big part of why it is the way it is. But um, so the, the work would come back, I would enter it in, and then that would be the starting point. But really a lot of the interconnections and game logic wasn't fully defined yet. So we had fully functional alien races in terms of being able to meet them, fight with them, make them your friends, get access to their ship designs. And we had populated space with these alien races and their spheres of influence, but we didn't necessarily know how they tied into the overarching story of blowing up the Sumatra. And uh, Fred at one point came over to my house in Nevada at this point and sat down and said, Paul, I know it's all in your head. You need to put it all down on paper now. So we sat down on this big chunk of white cardboard and drew absolutely every little interconnection. And then he could go program all of them because there was no system that allowed me to, to um, create things, you know, author conversations. It was me doing stuff on paper and then Fred putting it in, in C at that point. However, now we have Urquan Masters 2. We have got a system that is totally designer focused. And this is where you come in, Lee Hutchinson, because Kinda, yeah. I knew you were interested in, in your Star Control, the Urquan Masters, and I also knew you were a good writer. And so I was really excited when you said you were interested in, in helping us write. And then, oh, pleased to hear it. then I threw you into the very, very deep end of interactive fiction. Well, and it's important. <laughs> there are a couple of things that I want to hit on here. And it's important to note, I think, <clears throat> that when the time comes, and I don't know when that time is, only you do at this point, but when the time comes to pull in some additional help, especially on the writing side, additional volunteer help, what those folks are going to receive to write from is essentially what you did with, with Urquan Masters. They're going to essentially get you know, if it's available, a bio of the thing that they're writing for, and they're going to get a series of, like, bare prompts. Like you said, ask about the widget, tell them about the planet, you know, whatever. And then it's up to it will be up to them to sort of fill that in. Absolutely. And that is both because I'm lazy and I also know how to motivate people and get great creative things out of them. And the, the way to do it is to provide enough structure so that you're not just basically flailing, because I know structure really helps people, I think, be comforted and, and confident in how they're working. Um, and also, yeah, hey, it just worked great last time. I mean, between Errol and Matt and Greg, they, they had no problem coming up with awesome, innovative things. And I'd like to do that again, I think, this time, though I will not provide them with handwritten, burrito-stained pieces of paper. I'm using Visio because <laughs> you recommended it, Lee, and it's awesome. And uh, it'll be very much the same structure. Um, I think we, no, so let me, I'm backing up and making a very general statement here, which is that Urquan Masters 2, in my mind, is intended to be a direct, clear sequel to what we made. It's not a remake of Urquan Masters 1. It is not a reimagining of what that kind of game could be. I want this game to feel like, yes, it, it's probably prettier than we could have done in 1984, or 1994, but it feels like it's a direct connection. So in that sense, conversations will have new options and hopefully new, I think what my daughter would call transgressions because she's a PhD student. Um, and in, in other words, ways of transforming and expanding the relationship between the player and the choices they can make and what they, what they hear back. But it is really uh, using the same tools to communicate with these characters. And so for that reason, I really want to follow up on the same level of definition and structure and then turning to authors who, who aren't game designers, but letting them flesh out what this alien race is like. 
And in some cases, that's really great. Oh, okay. And that's, you're going to be one of them. I was going to say, I think that's really great because you obviate a lot of the problems of introducing a, a a creative non-technical into what is, I mean, game design is obviously a technical process. Even at the writing level, game design is a technical process. And you guys have done an excellent job at abstracting away a lot of that technicalness. Um, it's, I like that you're providing that level of flexibility to prospective writers too, because I've had in, you know, the main challenge that I've been doing so far is writing a, a character that is known to us and unknown currently to the, to the world. Um, you'll meet this character at some point when the game is out, but there's been a lot of, that's where I've been focusing a lot of my writing efforts now, cause it's a very meaty part with a lot to, to do. And it's helping to establish a lot of the early tone, but like Dan's question of how much do you know, going into crafting the conversation? Like I have generally a bare outline, um, but 80% of what that conversation is going to be, at least on the stuff that I've written is developed once I'm writing it. Uh, yeah. You know, I, it's, it's the spaces in between the targets that you have to hit where, where the, the meat is almost the good stuff. I mean, I've run, I tend to, my mind kind of works like a, like a, like, that's the best way to put it. My mind kind of works like a bread machine where like I put all the (laughs) ingredients in and then walk away. And then like, at some point ideas start popping out. I'm not sure when there's like, I think there's a guy in there and he's like pulling levers and occasionally he pulls the idea lever and one actually pops out. But I'll, I have sprinted from the shower to write, Urquan Masters 2 dialogue that has like popped into my head and I'm like, holy crap, I will forget this in 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> it, it comes at any point. Um, but it's nice having this structured process to put all this into because it, it, it so helps with organizing. It helps to know that I don't have to think of a conversation. I have to think of a conversation that has these four things in it. And that is so helpful. So incredibly helpful. Uh, at least to me. I think for me, the task of tell me about your history, like anybody who's ever been a DM or rambled at their friends or parents about ideas for stories that they have, you ask them, get, make up something about the history of an alien race and, and boy, they can. And, um, and then, you know, once uh, I'm trying to remember Matt's talking about like Klimt in the murky bog. I felt like Ghostbusters to me. Part of this is part of the Utwig conversation, where they're just rambling off with absolutely no connection. These long names of heroic characters from their ancient myths, and you know, just like being exposed to anybody's new mythology, you have no idea what he's talking about. But boy, does he take it seriously! And uh, man, the Utwig just went on and on. But anyway, I loved reading about them, and it was so fun because I knew, yeah, this is exactly what I wanted. Like, I. I don't know the Utwig character at this point, besides the fact that they're kind of depressed <laughs> and they, they wear masks. I think that's what I said. They wear masks and they're depressed because they broke the Ultron and the Ultron does amazing things or does it. And uh, real quick on the Ultron. Um, so w- the ongoing joke was, are we ever going to add the functionality to the rosy sphere? Because all of the things were kind of supposed to do something that the Druze had, but then we just sort of ran out of time or interest or the need to do it. So then they just became these pieces of junk that they were trying to sell you. And I still felt bad about um, uh, Wembley's Trident because I loved that name and I just thought this needs to be awesome. So if you've ever played The Horde, uh, a game that we did immediately following um, the, the original version of Iroquois Masters, we did introduce a Wembley's Trident that summoned meteors and it was badass and awesome. So flaming, flaming meteors. But anyway, um, 
Well, so, you've got to do something with those items anyway, right? You, you can't... It like you can't have extra Chekhov's guns lying around. If if an alien is going to sell something, it should do something. Yeah, yeah. Well, we all, yeah we also had people who dug around in the data found references to the the cloaking device we had and the precursor data tablets and there was stuff that we cut. I'm afraid from the game. We did have a whole conversation that we cut out, including I had done the animated art for it, and um, it was really self-serving. And I mean, we were burnt out at this point and. And we were really looking for something uh, insane and kind of, uh, what's the term, um, anti-establishment, because uh, we were dealing with uh, Accolade at this point, and they had stopped paying us, and they desperately wanted the game, and they didn't really understand it. And so we um, wanted to put in a conversation with ourselves where we could answer as these sort of supernatural beings in this narrative that we had created <laughs> and man i'm glad we actually didn't put it in there it looked really cool actually artistically but um God, if you have any just... screenshots lying around this would be the greatest place to share them. i i can i can get them out there <laughs> uh but um and you know there were some other there was a race called the um one of the things when i say that there's like you're you're sort of taking ideas and connecting them and like you described sometimes they just pop in your head but like i have gone back to the code wheel the initial code wheel we did for star control one and those names i'm still working through them and periodically i go back through them like phlegmorph i love that name like oh damn i use that as an offhanded reference i can't use that but the, the are going to be here and i actually you know what had to do actually i don't mean to interrupt but what would be awesome is because there might be a plan to use the in the next game when I'm editing this, I should I should put a beep over every time you say the word. <laughs> I think we should put the code wheel. We should put a picture of the code wheel and say these. If you want to know what's going to be appearing in the game, they're right. here. <laughs> Ruppatuppa and Hudpid. Yeah, I I love some of those names, and I have no idea where they came, but I remember spending like a good week of just free associating, writing everything down. But you know, you mentioned your ideas. I have I have this here horror story wrong deed search and this was something that came from a crazy experience and it took me a long time to remember what that yellow note meant what that post-it note meant i kept thinking like what what is the wrong deed that causes a horror story it literally has to do with a deed search that i had to do and they sent me the deed going back to the mid 1800s on the wrong piece of property and i just the idea of like searching through this like bizarre bunch of historical data that tr goes across different generations and involves exchanges and conflicts and all that and then realizing some horror about it you know as you start seeing it get closer and closer to the present so anyway someday i'll like use that like an 1800s version of the of the cursed videotape where now that you've seen the deed like your family was is destined to be a part of the curse of the house yes yes very lovecraftian Next question here. Um, these are a couple of mine, and then we'll go into Ariana's because Ariana has some excellent questions. This is this is Paul's daughter, Ariana. Um, I wanted to get into now that we've now that we've sort of broken the seal talking about some of the technical stuff. I wanted to get into sort of the mechanics and structure of conversation itself um, because I, I have this this newly privileged position of having done a little bit of this now, and it, it's 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 shown me a lot of interesting stuff. And the first is exactly how much hay you can make. <laughs> with with the with the font choice. Oh god. So let's <clears throat> talk fonts. Urquan Masters differentiates its characters using uh, during dialogue in four major ways. Um each alien has a unique voiced voice, a unique voice actor, um which which came with the 3DO version a couple of years after initial release. But they have they have a voice. 
Um, each alien has a, a, a unique musical theme. Uh, obviously, each alien has its own animated and character art. So you've got the, you know, Fliffo flailing his little, his little spathy arms. And then each alien has a unique typeface and color combination to, to sort of represent its speaking voice. And all of this came, you know, before the 3DO version, there was no voiceover. So sort of this, this typeface and color choice was to a certain, to, to a huge extent, actually, was the alien's voice. And each element contributes to the identity as the player sees them, but I want to focus specifically on that typeface and color choice. A, are you much of a font snob? And B, <laughs> how important to the characters is typeface choice? Uh, well, for those who don't know me, um, I do like fonts. For those who do know me, I am obsessive about them. And uh, this goes back to like the Atari 800, one of the very first programs I wrote was a a character sheet system for Gamma World. And, you know, you could make your fonts on the Atari 800. I don't know how many of you had Atari 800s or grandparents had them. But, and it was there that I realized, and again, I think Robert Leyland was the guy who got me into this, um, how amazing they were. But even before that, when I was working in paper games, in so in high school, uh, Matt, Genzer and Errol Otis, two of the guys who worked on dialogue for the Erquan Masters, that we were in high school together and we played D&D together. And fortunately, Errol was a brilliant artist and Matt was a good writer and I was lucky enough to have friends who would tolerate me. And we decided that, heck, um, the secret of Dungeons and Dragons is that it's poorly written, so we can do better than that. We're going to make our own books and sell them. And it helped that Errol had already illustrated one of the first kind of unaligned fantasy role-playing game books called The Ardwin Grimoire by David A. Hargrave. And so we began writing books of monsters, treasure, and magical spells. And we said, look, um, use these in whatever systems you're using, because there's like, gosh, four or five now, tunnels and trolls and who knows whatever, the fantasy trip. And so we wrote monsters and treasure and magical spells that appealed to us. So some, obviously, we lifted from our fame favorite book like Thothamon's Organ Request. Um, and then we also had a strange connection to Jack Vance, and so we were able to use some of his monsters and some of his spells um, with permission. But we really belabored our fonts. Uh, we, we thought through very carefully our font choices because we had gotten this Letraset book. And again, this is like speaking about stone tablets, but it was a book of typefaces and you would order a typeface and it would come on like rub off almost like temporary tattoos and you would very carefully write um, straight lines <laughs> in pencil, light pencil, and then you would position the rub off letters and then you would rub them off and they would be these beautiful black letters in these different fonts. And we ended up ordering like some of the most unreadable exotic fonts for our covers. And we ended up having to redo one of our covers because we used old Gothic instead of printer's Gothic. No one can read old Gothic. But anyway, so I really got into it and I used to just sit with this letter set book, looking at typefaces and imagining what would look cool. And I had the Star Trek technical manual and it was using a particular font that I loved. And Larry Niven's books had come out, been reissued with this really cool sort of, it was really like an optical character recognition font. But so I was really into it. And then um, when it came time to do the fonts, the characters in the Iroquois Masters, I knew I wanted special fonts, but there really wasn't a system that we had access to for them. So I wrote a font editor and it took me like, you know, would have taken Fred two days. It took me six weeks at minimum. But I did, and I, and I introduced this idea of sort of kerning, uh, which not many people were using at that time, but boy, does it make a difference. And I've been obsessive about kerning ever since. And that is how 
you don't use a regular space between all letters. If you have an uppercase T and a lowercase a following it, you can kind of tuck the lowercase a under the uppercase T. And there's, I mean, it's typically done in, in the past by hand. Um, and nowadays there's lots of complicated ways of defining it. And in some cases you can actually use physics to sort of see how these things should nestle next to each other. But I, so I constructed a way to do that. And, and then by the, in order to pick colors, uh, it was primarily looking at how it related to the color of the artwork. And we were working with 256 color art. So I would reserve a couple of those colors for the fonts. Um, and, you know, not only was it that the size of the font mattered, if you had a small font, characters could pack a lot of words on the screen at once. If you had a big font, it sounded loud. I mean, this isn't surprising to us, but at that point, writing in caps wasn't a big deal. Now people complain about you yelling at them if you write in all caps. So we discovered that font size made a difference in character definition. Readability mattered. So writing the, um, the Ilrath, for example, in that sort of kind of gothic-ish font made them a little harder to understand. And that actually played into your perception of the character. And a certain amount of this also comes from Pogo Possum. Excellent. I, you know, I bring this up because we were in the, uh, in the pistol shrimp discord the other day. Um, there was a, there was a, there was a dumb discussion that sort of devolved into people yelling at each other using the Illrath's voice and the way that the folks, the way the folks in the discord were imitating the Illrath was by capitalizing and bolding the first letter of each word in, in what they were saying. And it was actually, that's actually what prompted the question because it was actually remarkable <laughs> how just by capitalizing and bolding the first letter of each word, all of a sudden you find that Illrath cadence to your voice. Many when you charred like corpses. This. It's, it was, I just thought it was incredibly impressive how you guys managed to make a typeface and a color so evocative of an actual character to the point to where you could probably show me the words without the alien background at this point and it would still feel like something that that alien was saying <laughs> well i mean i think the, the manner in which people write uh makes such a huge difference and i wasn't joking about pogo i'm i'm gonna send you some images of that that we can include but it the uh, there was a bad character in the, uh, an evil deceptive character in there uh, who, gosh, what was he called? Oh, here, I found him. A vicar. I think he's called the vicar. Um, and he used uh, a, a sort of gothic-like font. And I remember as a little kid, really trying hard to read that. And then strangely, I went to this bizarre little private school in Berkeley called the Academy, um, where right behind me, in one, one class down from me, and our classes only had like 10 people in them, uh, was Mark Cerny, uh, the, one of the inventors of Marble Madness and most every famous character-based mascot game ever, as well as I think one of the recent PlayStations he designed. Anyway, he's a super genius and, and is fundamental to the success of games in the world. But um, we all had to take German. We had to take lots of languages at this school and fencing. It was a strange school. Uh, and the books that they gave us were pre-World War II, all of them. So when we were studying German, we were reading German in old, like German print. And and I people when I when when I could actually speak remote amounts of German, people would laugh because I sounded like an 80-year-old man. Um, because <laughs> I was speaking <laughs> as these books taught you to speak. I don't remember any of it now. Fred, of course remembers his German perfectly. But uh, so anyway, the, the fonts, super important. The spacing to me matters. A lot of details, I think, go right over people's heads. 
but I would never get rid of printed text. Um, you know, voiceover is powerful for an awful lot of people these days. You know, the, the books on tape or the, <laughs> the uh, audio books, probably people listen to those as much as they read nowadays. But I just can't imagine having dialogue without being able to read it because the placement on the screen, the use of fonts, colors, the, the speed with which you bring text on, like you had to learn actually all about That's how much my you can- question. Yeah. Well, yeah. should I ask you this question? What's the question? Ask yourself and respond. The, the question is like in the writing I've been, I've done so far, I have been floored literally. I mean, I didn't fall onto the floor, but I have been emotionally floored um, at just how heavily the limited amount of words you can display on screen affects not just the pacing of the sentence that the alien is reading, but the tone of the entire conversation. Um, unlike with a reader in a book where the reader controls the speed with their eyes or an audiobook or narration where you are listening to something being read to you, in Urquan Masters, we can, and in Urquan the sequel using the same system, we can feed a line of dialogue in at a time, and controlling that drip of words can become another way to build tension or execute comedy or delay or force towards dramatic beats or anything else. Do you find that uh, the chunked way dialogue is presented in Urquan Masters and will be in the sequel affected not just the presentation of the dialogue, but the actual structure of how and what you are writing? It sort of forces you to build dramatic beats into... It, it forces you to assess not just the content of your words, but their presentation. And that's unusual for an author. Well, I, it, it does force it to me because I also have kind of a graphics perspective on things and layout and how things relate to the kind of composition of the character image or the animation motion. All of that matters to me. So the, the answer is yes. And I found it not a limitation, but just another creative choice. So I really loved how you could, when you, when you wrote a short sentence, your eye just didn't blink over it. It had impact. I think you may have just said that. And I'm saying it again, and I'm taking credit for it. Works for me. And then uh, also like the moving, moving the dialogue in the Zakfat pick conversation, like that was, I remember Fred, I don't think he was super happy about doing that because we hadn't done that where we were popping dialogue around in different flow boxes. So for each character string that gets printed, you have a flow box where the text goes in there. And when it hits out, when, when a word that's being typed down hits the perimeter of the box, it gets moved down to another line. And there's quite a bit of, Fred had actually done a lot of that in a previous job for a preprint product. But um, in the Zarkfot- Because we are, we are spatial creatures. We, we, have, we have memory associations with spatiality. And by adding that spatial aspect of where on the screen the dialogue is, it's over here for this guy and over here for this guy, even then that, that spatiality enhances the sort of that, that instant blink first read ability of your brain because you don't <laughs> have to coordinate which, which one of these characters is saying that. You simply, you simply know at a really low-level, thought-fast kind of way. You know what would be funny, and we haven't thought about this or talked about it, so I'll just throw it out here. And we're not we're not exposing anything we're thinking of, and that is, you meet a character who literally thinks out loud, but his species don't hear the out loud part for whatever reason. <laughs> so he's what he's saying to you is up here, and his internal dialogue is right below it. <laughs> and like and he, you can tell him maybe, but really you're just appreciating like he is not at all telling me what he's thinking. Oh, and I, you it could, could be like could be like a like a species with 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 a with a with a large mouth at the top of their head and a smaller <laughs> mouth and the smaller mouth speaks at a different frequency and it's like their inner voice mouth and they have a special word for it but like they can't hear the frequencies right no when the ones they did they would kill each other i just love that idea or you could get like a telepathic thingamajig and then you could hear 
kind of a secondary. So don't worry, I have this new idea. We're going to double the amount of dialogue we write, because for every piece of dialogue, when you get this little device, you hear a second string. Um, one of the challenges that we get when we start talking about font choice and layout and all of that is the impact on kind of people's accessibility. And this is always a, a kind of a fight or a challenge, which is you want to empower absolutely everybody to appreciate your work. So whether that relates to how they see colors or the languages that they understand or their their willingness to read in complex, you know, character definitions, complex fonts. And it led to me, one of the topics I, I wanted to talk with you about actually outside of this was about Effectively, I don't think we should take translation into account um, mm. because I don't think I know how to do that. And I'm too worried about rounding the corners of what we say because we're worried that in some language, this may eventually get translated into that the topic won't work. And we ran so, into yeah, this. For, for readers who may not be 100%, before Paul goes on, for readers who may not be 100% for readers, I'm so used to saying readers. I say readers even out loud, like I'm writing for <laughs> art. Okay. For listeners who may not be 100% familiar with this, what Paul's talking about is typically when you're making a video game, the dialogue needs to, the dialogue and all text, any labels, anything where there's words needs to be translatable so that you can release this game in other language markets. Uh, you know, there, there'd be a German version and a French version and a Russian version and a uh, Chinese version and multiple Chinese versions and, and whatever, whatever, whatever languages you want to pay to localize. It's called localization. And packaging your words up so that they are translatable so that they're, so that your words are essentially a resource that can be yanked out, twiddled around, and then shoved back into the game without changing the game is actually a, a tremendously complex process. And we did some, we're, we're sort of designing for it with the system that Paul's made for Urquan Masters 2, where I believe internally the game refers to lines of conversation by a variable name, and then the actual line of conversation that is then summoned when you look up that variable can be in whatever localized language you want. But you run into the problem of, and I think this, I'm going to talk over what you were about to say. You run into the problem of like jokes, idioms, like a lot of these things don't, don't translate. Yeah. We discovered that with the Japanese version, the Utwig totally didn't work in Japanese. That idea of a character who's pathetic and like hates himself and hates everything. The, the people, when we were putting out a Japanese version, the people translating said, this isn't funny. This just makes me sad. And we were like, oh, well, that's kind of, and then it was like, yeah, this isn't just me. This is cultural here. This doesn't work. And we're like, oh, well, you know, we're not going to rewrite all of that. But, and I think, I think that we, we are, if we knew a lot of languages, um, I can't speak for you. I don't know a lot of languages well. No, I know English. But and, I and high want, school German. <laughs> I want to use what I do know with some level of sophistication and artistry. And if I have to worry about how will this look in Thai, I won't be able to do that. So, so you know, an, an example of this was I was writing something today for no particularly good reason. This popped into my head. It had to do with the fox in the hen house. And I sort of, the, the term fox in the hen house came up and I was sort of laughing about it thinking, God, I wonder how many people know hen houses. And then I was thinking about the Druze. And so they they were going to be saying something which was, not fox and hen house, but it had the same enough of the same cadence and enough of the context that one of the statements you could make is, is that like what we say, fox and hen house, where it means this and this and this, and 
they basically say, oh, that's kind of cute. No, that isn't what it means. For us, the fox is a psychopathic murderer that we allow to wander free. And hen house is the place where you keep your most valuable assets, including, you know, the family members that you like. And the fox in the hen house is this, like, when you're really angry and frustrated at your competitor, it's that feeling like, oh, if only I could take the psychopathic murderer and let them into your, in your hen house. And it rarely, you know, it's a rare feeling. It's, it's far more frequent that you actually do that. <laughs> that, the fox in the hen house is letting the psychopathic murders into your competitors' houses. And it That's had to do rude. just with, like, will any of this make sense? One, I don't know if it makes sense to people who read English, because it's sort of a dark concept, but it's very druzy. And I don't even, and, and honestly, we don't know exactly the role of the druzy in the game yet. They, we've talked about a lot of different options. And, um, you know, who knows if they will have a presence that allows them to speak in that voice. But so much of what is in the Irquan Masters comes from me drinking coffee and just musing and writing this stuff down. And someday, hopefully, either the Druze or someone else will use that bizarre fox in the hen house metaphor. So let's close on... (laughs) Paul, that was too weird. We have to wrap it up now. I'm sorry. No, it was great. But let's close now. Otherwise, we're going to have to like do a second part right after this with with one of Ariana's questions that she said you wanted to get to because it's an excellent question. I'm going to read this as written, and it's it's a long question. At a narrative design level, How do you get truly transgressive with interactive fiction? When a game's implicit structure is presented to the player at the start, you're making decisions and you don't know where they'll lead, anything can happen, Um, how can we truly rattle someone? Is it down to story? Is it about making them question the screen or hardware in front of them, like fake-out glitching, uh, that kind of thing? Is it making them question their own environment and the flimsy barrier between game worlds and their own world, getting into the territory of ARGs? Or is there another, or is there another way to get, I mean, I think this is a fascinating question because I have my own ideas, but you're, as someone who has made transgressive games, how <laughs> do you get transgressive in IF? First of all, kudos to my daughter. She is a PhD student in interactive fiction, and she also did do voice work in the original version of the Urquan Masters. But besides that, it's a good question, and I think she's trying to trap me. Um, but what I will say is that being transgressive or being tricky, depending on how you want to look at it, to me is sort of taking people's expectations and playing with them. And so you have to sort of step back and dissect, okay, what are the, what do people expect? They expect that they're a character and that they make a statement and that it's accurately transmitted to the NPC in the, in the fantasy world and that that character hears what you said and responds and that you can understand their response and that somehow they're connected. So let's break one of those. Let's say you make a choice and the alien hears something different. There is an example. I'm sorry to interrupt. There's an example <laughs> that comes immediately to mind. Um, and it's from, I don't, I don't know how, how, how long it has been, or if you have played Portal 2, the sequel to Portal. Mm, yeah. Um, there's, there's that moment at the very beginning of the, okay, there is a moment at the very beginning of the game during the tutorial where you, you awaken from a coma. You've been in a coma for quite some time. And there is a sort of a, a guide a guide robot that comes up and says, oh, you're awake. I'm so glad you're not in a coma anymore. Um, can you, <coughs> what does he say? It's like, uh, look up to me or look up at me and, and say the word Apple. I'm, I'm horribly missing. I'm going to get skewered by viewers, but <laughs> the, the person basically, or the robot basically says, look up at me and say the word Apple to let me know that you don't have brain damage. And the game prompts you say Apple space bar and you press space bar and your character jumps. <laughs> and, and Wheatley the robot is like, oh, uh, okay, well, that's that's good, good enough. Good jumping you, there. <laughs> you probably don't have brain damage. 
Yeah. <laughs> that is brilliant. I think there's other ways of doing it. And, you know, we talked about some of them because I, I think this is a great way to go. Um, and And one of the things I would reveal is that there's other things that you can put in the list of statements that you can make that aren't just the literal statements that you're going to say to the alien. And one of the things that you and I have talked about, and you know, I think it's okay to reveal this, is this idea of if you're making a statement that somehow like in parentheses or it's indicated, you're actually thinking about something. So it's a statement to yourself. So an example would be, is he lying? So you're asking yourself that question. It's internal dialogue. And that internal dialogue might lead to a whole internal conversation with yourself where you're thinking about things. So it's a way of sort of a mechanical process of thinking in which your character might realize something that maybe you, the player, already know, or he may jump and figure something out by the process of what's being said. And you can then, after the fact, go, oh, I see how he got there, and that was ahead of me, or I never would have thought of that. So it's effectively providing a new dimension of what am I, what, what is my saying something mean? Um, and, you know, uh, you could think of a million things, but you could break the fourth wall. And when they, when the player says something, the player could actually address us. Uh, the player could address himself, you know, uh, so the character, the protagonist directly addresses the player who's playing him. Um, or, and again, um, yeah, I won't, I won't get into too much of what we're going to do, but this playing with this and surprising you about, I thought I knew what conversation was about. And then all of a sudden you're doing something kind of the same, but holy cow, it means something entirely different. Uh, and the world's bigger and different than I thought. So, uh, you know, that, I think there's probably things you can do in specific statements that people aren't expecting. Um, but Personally, I feel like it's worth, if we get transgressive, making it game mechanic-y. And by that, I mean, it's not just content. Uh, somehow it influences the flow of the game. So an example of that would be in the midst of a conversation, this option pops up and it says, raise the shields. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess I will, you know, and you're, you're essentially giving the game a verbal instruction. And now the game is responding. So now, is that that much different than having a raise the shields button in the UI? No, but at least it's being well, placed it, in a spot. If it starts flashing for no reason <laughs> in the middle of the conversation. Yeah, and I think I think one place that we did a little bit of that was when you are talking with the um, with a talking pet with the denari, and how all of a sudden your options are not the options you want to say. They're just like <laughs> flowers. Talk about the flowers. Um, so anyway, I, I hope that answers the question. Um, it Ariana does. It does. And generally, I mean, <clears throat> if I see an out, if I see a, a truly weird prompt show up down in the dialogue list, if there's something that really doesn't jive with what with what I think would be normal in that situation, that feels like a breadcrumb. That feels like as a player, like, oh crap, I need to press that immediately because something is <laughs> going to happen. It's either going to be really funny or really bad or both. <laughs> I think it would be funny if there was an option there, and you. This isn't funny. This is horrible. There's an option there that looks really cool, and you move your mouse over it. It's like, oh, I forget. What was that thing again? <laughs> and it's sort of like that <laughs> moment where you have a great idea, and then you go back and you look for it in your memory stack, and it's just gone. You're like, yeah, you know. Anyway, let me. Uh, I, I want to thank you for for being available for this podcast, Paul. And let me close here with a um, 
Let me close here with a question that I'm going to lift straight from Ghostbusters, and I'm going to change the name in it a little bit. How is Fwifo, and have you seen him lately? <laughs> I do. I actually talk with him on a pretty regular basis, and um, I spend a lot of money with expensive therapists in a related problem. But, you know, um, at, at different times over the past 30 years, he has um, he's been in debt, and that caused him a bunch of problems. Um, he, uh, at one point, appeared out of nowhere and said, hi, so sorry, I broke time, gotta go, bye. And and I, well, for the longest time, I was trying to figure out what that meant. Um, and could I use it in the game? And and yeah, ultimately, we're not going to do that. But um, yeah, no, he is, he is my alter ego. In fact, it isn't even, he's just me. Um, you know, all of his crazy stuff about wanting to hide in trees from monsters. You can ask anyone who spent time with me and they will say, <laughs> Paul is way weirder. Um, for a long time, everybody at Activision knew I was the guy who thought more about surviving the zombie apocalypse through simple, you know, simple activities and like um, knee flexibility. That's a really key one. I'm sorry. Maybe zombies can run fast, and and there's you, you know, know. Listen, I, you told me. Do we me want to have a that, separate talk about zombies? Because I'm willing. To. Well, I, very quickly, you told me once that one of your one of your ambitions in life was to, in fact, learn every skill that might potentially be of use to a medieval villager. And mm. I, I'm wondering if that actually is, in fact, tied back to zombie survival. They are related, and a lot of this goes back to both my mother and my sister. Uh, and uh, my sister is what I would call the sweetest survivalist you've ever met. Uh, no weapons at all, no crazy right-wing philosophy, but just, you know, she she is well-prepared for all outcomes. And I grew up in the, you know, hide under the bed from the nuclear explosion. <laughs> and I often duck have and, said, duck and cover days. I am kind of unprepared for modern life because I really expected to be wandering across a just like radioactive wasteland at this point in my life. In fact, far younger. So this is all new to me, and I was really well prepared for that. But in any event, uh, I haven't talked to Fwifo too much about that, but I do I do converse with characters. Um, there's characters from games that I never never finished um, that that are still alive and kicking. And uh, an example is um, we did game design uh, for something called Minions when we were with uh, Crystal Dynamics, and it ends up being a whole lot of what goes into Skylanders. And there was a character called the Willikins in there. And, and this is not just for, just for listeners. This is not yellow one-eyed minions. This is, this is minions, minions before that. Oh, right. Minions. Yeah. Actually, you know what? We have a design document. It's one of the most pretty design documents I've ever seen. And one of the things I'd love to do is at some point, it's a little off the topic of the Orquan masters, but I'd love to go through it because the make an appearance in there, believe it or not. Uh, I think they're they're called a slightly different name, but they're they're definitely like that. And uh, and you may need to bleep out again. But um, and some of those characters, there's a, a particular set of characters called the Whisperers. Who, um, God, I think I think that was used in a Walking Dead thing. But anyway, the 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 Whisperers were a particular character with a particular background that had a it just. Like, I desperately want them to exist in, in other people's heads. Uh, so at some point, they'll get out there. So characters, both um, the ones that I've come up with, uh, ones from my favorite books, and ones from, you know, just ideas, live in my head and are using up some of the cycles. Those precious cycles that I could be using for other things uh, are chewing them up. And, and uh, you know, when I'm driving down the road fully caffeinated, that's like the best possible time. Excellent. All right. Well, I hope this is the first of several of these that we do. And I just wanted to say that a part of why we're doing this 
is because you asked us to. Yeah. Um, and I mean, obviously, we love to talk about this stuff. But, you know, if in, in terms of what's valuable for the community, if it's talking about, you know, kind of the crazy stuff that we did that didn't end up in the game or ideas that we had or, you know, things that we would love to do in the future, we'd love to talk about that stuff. Just let us know what you're most interested in and we'll try to get to it. Absolutely. All righty. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We will be back with another one of these, maybe. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.